0: Welcome to the Eater Upsell, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I am one of your two hosts, Helen Rosner. My co-host, Greg Morabito, as always, is right here with me, both in heart and in spirit and in reality. Every week on the Eater Upsell, Greg and I talk with some of the most interesting people in the world, both food people and non-food people, and we usually talk to them about food. On today's episode, we are talking to a food person, but really it's like the food person. Greg and Amanda Clute, a guest host because I couldn't be in the studio for this conversation, are talking with Danny Meyer basically the biggest deal restaurateur in the entire world. But first, Greg, on a recent episode of The Eater Upsell, you and I did dramatic readings of two restaurant press releases that came across our email inboxes and it was pretty fun. It felt
1: good. It felt felt really good. good. I don't know why. I think because as a food writer, you get so many of these dumb press releases and you just have, you hate them, but you have to read them because there might be like, Buried in there some piece of information that is news. You it's know? true.
0: But, you know, at a certain point, these press releases kind of transcend to the level of art. And we asked listeners of the upsell to drop us a line at upsell at eater with any examples of press releases or other restaurant marketing material that they thought deserved the dramatic reading treatment. And the response was actually pretty overwhelming. We heard from a lot of people with some pretty knee slapping Restaurant promotional material, but Greg, one stood out above all the rest. Um, oh, I actually yes. went in and prevented you from seeing this because I want to surprise you today. I want like an authentic set of reactions from you. Okay, as I read you this press release. Um,
1: um, I'm in the zone. I'm 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 doing some breathing exercises to clear my mind.
0: So, in the interest of of not punching down, I'm gonna excise from this press release the name of the restaurant and the place where it's located. I think this is a restaurant that, by all accounts, does really, really cool things. Um, So I don't want them to get hurt by the fact that we're just going to flagrantly make fun of them for a few minutes. that's
1: the classy, I think that's always the classy move, and I would expect uh, nothing less. I'm a classy
0: broad. So here's the deal. This is a restaurant, and they are offering a special dinner called... I never thought I'd eat that.
1: Oh. Uh, okay. All right.
0: So, okay, AP Dan, lay down some mood music for me, and I'm going to get in here. Ready? Ready? Ready. Ready.
2: Ready? Ready? Ready.
0: Start, for example, with a salad made with jellyfish and shiro eibi, a white prawn. That will be followed by a sazai sashimi with shiso dressing. Sounds harmless enough until one is reminded that... While in actuality, sazai are a rather grotesque shellfish, in Japanese mythology, they are creatures that take human form and eat people. One common fable tells how sailors rescue a beautiful woman from drowning. She turned out to be a sazai who, in the days of making love to the sailors, cut off their testicles, then bargained for gold to give them back.
1: Oh my god. I don't don't want (laughs) to do anywhere near that, if that's the truth.
0: This dish, the sasai, not the testicles, will be served with sea grapes and sardine chips. not the testicles,
1: not the testicles. That's
0: in there, it's a real parenthetical. The sasai, not the testicles, in parentheses, will be served with sea grapes and sardine chips. Sardine chips are not chips and sardines, but chips made with sardines. Whoa, mind blown. New paragraph. But speaking of testicles... The main course, prepared by chef name redacted, happens to be Rocky Mountain oysters served like a stew with lamb heart. The Uh, stew comes with a Peruvian mint sauce and roasted potatoes.
1: So (laughs) this is a sort of aphrodisiac themed, you lose your testicles and then we give them back to you on the next course.
0: In the form of a stew, yeah. This is followed by a ramen made with mantis shrimp. These colorful killers are known for their ruthlessness in killing prey and in defending themselves. Larger ones have been known to escape from aquariums by literally smashing the glass. Finally, dessert brings a whole new chapter to -to farm-to-table dining. The sweet ending will be chapulines and Mexican cocoa ice cream with gusanos and slices of honeycomb. Translated, that pretty much comes down to grasshoppers, ice cream, worms, and honeycomb.
1: Wow. Okay. So I, you know, I got so wrapped up. Is that it? Is <laughs> yeah, that it? Are we... it?
0: We're there. We're okay. done.
1: We're done. Have feelings. I, <laughs> I got so wrapped up in the sort of stories of the individual dishes and the kind of, um, you know, you're in Japan and then you're in Peru and then you're in Mexico. I totally and forgot. And someone with... has
0: cut your balls off and she's going to sell them back to you for gold. But then it's also a stew. I mean, the emotional roller coaster of this press release is.
1: Yeah. It sounds like a a uh, ayahuasca trip or something.
0: Yeah, it's a lot. So what do you think was my favorite sentence in this?
1: Uh, I think probably the thing about the the mythical, whatever that <laughs> piece of mythology is, just because it was so, uh, uh, what a weird angle to throw in there. I guess it's really but, just but,
0: the transition. I just, I love this. Like, as the as the opening phrase of a paragraph, just like, but speaking of testicles,
1: like, <laughs> right. how do I? <laughs> uh, yeah, I dare you to just try and insert that into something you write for Eater and just see if anybody just notices. Every- I
0: feel like you should start adding it to, like, fortune cookies. Like, instead of adding oh, right. in bed to the beginning, just add, but speaking of testicles, comma, to, like. Uh,
1: that's just a great, yeah, just a great way to change <laughs> the subject in any sort of, like, if you're at a party and you don't really, you know.
0: Yeah, but speaking of testicles. Yeah. Think of testicles,
1: yeah. Speaking of testicles, really nice place you have here.
0: <laughs> well, speaking of testicles, Greg, we have a great guest today on the Eater Ups. <laughs>
1: oh my gosh, no, no. <laughs> oh, Danny, I hope you don't listen to this part. <laughs> well, speaking of testicles, we're we are not going to discuss that them at all in um, in this
0: upcoming conversation. No, th- that no, you no. and our Stay boss have. With I would be, Danny there's Meyer. nothing that would make me more
1: red in the face than <laughs> discussing that with my boss and Danny Meyer.
0: Yeah. Well, I can't wait to hear whether or not you guys speak of testicles. <laughs> do you
1: have any say in the, the music that's in your restaurants? Like, do you mm-hmm. ever say, hey, let's put that on the old yes. playlist? Yeah. Yep. They're all, they're a little bit different at every restaurant, I
3: feel like. Which they should be. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, it's really one, it's actually one of the hardest things to get right.
2: Are you micromanaging those? Because mm-hmm. I know, with, I think Andrew Carmelini was a chef who was always like picking every single song on every single playlist no, in his restaurants. No, but
3: you know, one of the, one of the great things because of, if you take Pandora like five steps further, mm-hmm. there's companies now who can say, uh, all right, mm-hmm. I understand the menu, I understand the atmosphere. I understand your clientele, and then they can actually create a playlist. And then you have the opportunity, just like on Pandora, for example, to go like that if a song sucks or mm-hmm. like that, if you like it. I mean, it generally takes, you know, a few months to get it right yeah. where you don't have too many mm-hmm. clunkers in there. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's hard. It's really hard. I, I have the same experience with music in a restaurant that I have when I go to buy a shirt. Mm-hmm. Which is, if you were to say to me, draw the shirt that you want to wear, mm-hmm. I, I would completely strike out. Yeah. But, <laughs> but if you say of these five shirts, mm-hmm. it's really easy for me to pick the right one. Yep. So I'm not the guy that usually starts the conversation saying, here's exactly what we should be playing at this restaurant. Right, right, right. But, but you I'm know really when good it's right and when it's yeah. wrong. Whereas with food, I know exactly what I want.
1: In Union Square Hospitality Group, is there somebody whose job is just to to manage the music and and, and do all those playlists, or is it like site-specific? No.
3: It's site-specific, yeah. Shake Shack, um, the marketing, the, the guy who runs our marketing, Edwin Bragg, who came from GQ many, many years ago, <laughs> um, he really gets it. It's incredible. And so the playlist at Shake Shack has actually become a thing. Um that people subscribe to, and it's...
2: Oh, wow. They, they totally okay. get it. Um, so I would love to talk a little bit about hospitality included, now that you're a year and a half in. like what What's the status report from you guys? How has it been going so far?
3: Status report is that I'm as firmly convinced that it's the right way to go as ever, or more. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I understand it a lot better. I understand what's tough about it. I understand what works. And... I I think it's inevitably going to be part of how restaurants do business. I don't know how long it's going to take to get there. I think some mm-hmm. have, have wanted to do it because from a philosophical standpoint, they completely embrace it. But from a mathematical and or emotional standpoint in terms of leadership, they haven't quite figured out how to do it. Um, but I think one of the things that's been really helpful is having a team that is used to leadership that says, let's figure out a fresh way to do things that were always historically done a different way. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, because now we've, um, since since 2015, when we introduced it at The Modern, it's now at six of our restaurants. I think that our patrons have almost all now experienced it. And that's, I cannot overstate how helpful that is, because the first time you do it, and you, you didn't know what to expect, there is actually um, a moment where you have sticker shock because you yeah. look at menu prices that actually include the real cost of doing business as opposed to what you used to do, which is I know the menu says $26 for the chicken and I know I'm going to take another six bucks out of my pocket at the end of the meal to pay a tip, but people don't tend to know how to do reverse math
2: Right, right. So, it's it's very hard for people to get used to seeing that, it is, especially once, with drinks, I think.
3: It, once you've done it once um, and then you have the, the experience of going, oh, my gosh, there's not an extra line for a tip. That's all there is. Oh, and by the way, I don't have to buy my coat back from the coat checker mm-hmm. afterwards. I think people, they get it. And now that they've had the experience in so many of our restaurants so many times, they actually – they like it. And they, I, I never hear anybody anymore, which I did when we were first launching it, from the guest standpoint, say, well, how dare you take away my opportunity to punish bad service? Right. Um, and that's really refreshing because I think people realize that whether or not you get good hospitality never had anything to do with your tipping.
2: The chat thing is always interesting to me because it's so hard to not do that. I'm sure the hostesses and the co-check people, when, they, when they're when they trying to refuse tips, it can be hard.
3: It was a little bit awkward at the beginning, um, but, you know, I, I heard someone at Union Square Cafe um, soon after we opened—it was really cold um, in the early months of Union Square Cafe—and the co-checker said, um, it's, no, it's my pleasure, or whatever. And the person said, no, come on, you, you got to let me tip you. And then the co-checker said you already bought your coat once. Why should you have to do it again? <laughs> right. And it's like, okay, I get it now.
2: That's, a, that's amazing. Do you feel disheartened when you see some restaurants that have tried it and then have gone back to the old model?
3: That's a, that's a good question. I mean, I struggle with whether I'm rooting for this to take root everywhere mm-hmm. or nowhere because on one hand, and I th- this kind of reminds me of 1990 when we— unilaterally and voluntarily eliminated smoking at Union Square Café, which did not become law in New York for 12 years thereafter because everybody was completely convinced that 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 and that alone would put bars out of business, nightclubs out of business, restaurants. Everyone would start going to New Jersey where Mm -hmm. you can smoke. I
2: remember that.
3: And Union Square Café sort of had the playing field all to itself, and we kept getting busier and more popular. And I knew it was the right thing. And and so it was kind of advantageous from a business standpoint. So with respect to hospitality included, one of the main reasons that we did it in the first place was that it felt awful to, on one hand, say we're a company that puts our employees even before our guests with respect to hospitality, but to realize that with every single passing year, tipped employees— in the fine dining world, we're making more and more money because a tip is a multiplier of menu prices, which were only going up because landlords were raising their rent. Labor was going up. Uh, minimum wages going up. So the tipped employees were making more and more money. The non-tipped employees were making barely more than they were making 25 years ago. And it was B.S. for me to say we put our employees first, but only half of them. Right. And so— that was philosophically why it was important to do it. We were also facing the worst shortage of qualified cooks that i had ever seen, because you couldn't afford to get a culinary education and live in a city with really high rents and, and take a cook job here. And so a big part of hospitality included was to also find a way to break that economic barrier and, and raise The hourly pay for cooks, which we did, and we no longer have a shortage of cooks at any of our restaurants. So, to your question, philosophically, as someone who cares about the sustainability of our entire industry, I am sad when a restaurant earnestly tries this and cannot figure out the math. on the other hand, you the get longer, to retain all the
2: cooks. The longer <laughs>
3: it takes for others to figure it out, the more advantage we will be in terms of having less turnover um, and, and a greater opportunity to attract talent.
2: Do you think you need to be a bigger group to make it work? Versus if you're just an independent, I know no. you run them all as independent restaurants. Yeah, but...
3: I, I, I hear your question. I don't. I don't think it has to do with size. I think it has to do with stomach. I think mm-hmm. you have to be willing. To look at this as an investment in doing the right thing that you also believe will will be good business, and i I generally think that doing the right thing is good business. Mm-hmm. Um, so what i what I mean by that is this when we when we first launched it at the modern, I will tell you that all the things we wanted to do, and we wanted to do a lot of things, we wanted to do everything possible to keep our formerly tipped employees as close to what they were making with tips as possible. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of money. That's got to go into the menu price. We wanted to give our cooks a 20 percent raise. We wanted to give our starting managers a raise, because one of the worst things about tips, it's a drug, and people cannot get off the drug. You start waiting tables as a tipped employee. usually to put yourself through some other thing you're pursuing, Mm -hmm. and you make so much money, especially in in a New York City fine dining restaurant, that you end up waking up 20 years later and your career that you were first interested in passed you by or... If you wanted to become a manager and make a career out of this, you can't because—
2: It was never tempting enough to get well, the, the starting,
3: money. Well, the starting salary for a manager would typically be 25 percent less than what a tipped employee was making. So we wanted to break that. So all the things we were trying to do actually would have cost us 32 to 35 percent more. And meanwhile, because we were introducing this and going first, and we didn't want to give too much sticker shock to our, our regular guests— we basically raised everything somewhere in the realm of 20 to 22%. So, to your question, it has nothing to do with how big we are or how small we are. We said, we're going to take it on the chin, and and we're actually going to squeeze our margins. But we think it's a great investment, because the longer we wait to do this, the harder it's going to be to get off the drug. And the reason—and I I don't think a lot of restaurants appreciate this or understand it—is that the whole restaurant economy is falsely based on this notion that the menu price is everything except for the person who brings your food to the table and takes the dishes away from the table and you're going to pay for that separately apart from the sticker price that you see on the menu and by the way the the servers that the customer is responsible for tipping is historically paid an adjusted minimum wage of $2.13. And, and the reason that I'm bringing this all up is that minimum wage is not going to go down in our lifetimes. Each of the last two years, it's gone up. In New York, it's now $9, which is great. But what that means is that for restaurants that have not eliminated tipping, in order to pay that increased minimum wage, which will go up yet again at the end of this year, the menu prices keep going up. and if you're the customer, you are now paying a twenty percent tip on top of even higher menu prices. And we believe that with the next menu with the next um, minimum wage increase, our prices that include hospitality will actually be on an exact par with restaurants where you still have to tip because we pay way above minimum wage, and therefore we are immune every time minimum right. wage when goes up.
2: the labor laws change, you won't be affected at all. And now you're retaining all of the staff that you've yeah. been so wanting to hold on to. So it,
3: it, it has to do with your willingness to look at this as an investment in people, as an investment in doing the right thing. But I also believe it's going to have proved to be very good business.
1: Danny, if you had a look in your crystal ball, do you think that the uh, the eliminating tipping will be something like smoking, where it's just like in 10 years, 15 years, It'll be the industry norm that there is no tipping, or do you think that it's going to be? Yes,
3: yes, I do. And I think there's another factor at play, which is that you you all know that we're um, you know we're in a fascinating moment with respect to to eating. You guys have a lot to do with this, actually, because there's there has never in the history of the world been more interest in eating good food, drinking good cocktails, good wines. And there's never been more ways you can do it. You don't have to go to a restaurant. You don't have to go to a bar. You don't have to be served by a a waiter. You can go to a fine, casual restaurant. You know, when Shake Shack opened in 2004, the very first thing I said is, we are not going to have a tip jar here. And you now see, um, slowly but surely, that. Many of the meals that are not being eaten in full-service restaurants are being eaten in fast-casual or fine-casual restaurants where there's no tipping. You know that when you have a a ride service like Uber or Lyft, there's no tipping, generally. You get up and you leave. And I feel like there's this just major shift in the way people are thinking about their experiences. They want the experience to be good. They don't want to feel like the only reason you're being nice to me is— in expectation that I'm gonna give you a tip at the end. I, I want good food and I want nice people and swift service wherever I go. So yeah, I, I think it's it's gonna go that way. I have absolutely no idea. I don't believe it should be a law. I think there was a reason that smoking probably should have been a law because smoking happens to you, whether you choose or not. Um, but I, in the same way, the trans fats being eliminated from food I think was a good law because you couldn't taste whether it had—the mm-hmm. average person couldn't taste that. But I think that, you know, if you want to, in 10 years, go to a restaurant because it makes you feel good to tip somebody, fine, <laughs> go do it. I don't care.
2: <laughs> do you think it, it'll it be the same with um, eliminating checks? I know you tweeted about that recently, about the experience of— Yes. Having to pay a check and pick up the check and, and yes. that exchange.
3: Yeah, I, I don't know how long it's going to take to have people adopt that. I know Open Table has been providing that opportunity for the last three years or so. And the adoption rate is really, really low so far. But I just—you know, once—I think these things are going to go hand in hand. So if you think about the presentation of a check— it's a ridiculous friction point in the dining experience, especially if there's no tipping, right? Because— There's
2: nothing for you to do.
3: There's nothing to do except get up and leave. And and I think that there's this moment that does not work for the guest or for the waiter, which is some guests are ready to leave and they can't find their waiter.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Some waiters are ready to present a check, but they can't tell whether the guest is ready for it or not. They don't want to make the guest feel rushed— they're damned if they do, and they're damned if they don't.
2: And there's the moment where they check to see if you've signed and you haven't. And it it, the check you is always
1: uh, comes with some sort of anxiety attached to it.
3: It does, including how much should I tip and and let's not forget that when you get to that point in your dinner, you've probably had a couple of glasses of wine or more. And, you know, it's just it's not a nice moment. And I just think if that can go away and it and there's lots of, technology that exists. I don't know how long it's going to take for the right one to be adopted, but I know that's going to happen because it's just one of these things. It's ridiculous. It doesn't have to happen.
2: And in some of those um, fine dining situations where you pay ahead of time and buy a ticket, it's really nice because at the end, you don't even have to think about money. It's like buying another, I don't know, luxury item. Like you buy it and then you experience it. That's true.
1: So Danny, one thing I'm very interested in, Kind of checking out your career right now is like you've opened so many restaurants, so many different kinds of restaurants, and like if you read Eater, you're still opening restaurants. You're going to new cities, and you're doing. I
3: don't have to read Eater to open restaurants.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, that's but, true. That's true. But,
3: but you sure notice when we do. <laughs> we do.
1: Yeah. Oh man, we love it. But like you know, you're still opening new restaurants and doing new experiences. And I'm just kind of curious, like over your long career, what, what do you think's changed in terms of what diners want now versus what they wanted back in the like the late 80s? And are you doing anything to sort of diversify the experience there and create new things based on like, you know, new trends or new new tastes?
3: Absolutely. And I, I mean, I don't know, your your listeners can't see this, but in back of your head right now is an album cover of of Neil Young. And Crazy Horse, great album, and I think about a guy like Neil Young, who's been writing music since I was a little kid, and he keeps—same same musician, same instrument, same voice, and yet he keeps pushing boundaries because he likes to play music with different groups, different musicians. He likes to collaborate. He likes to explore different ways of sharing his gift, um, which is a mighty gift. And I feel like we are so fortunate to have a gift for combining how we make you feel and what we put on your plate. And what I've increasingly found my own interest in exploring, besides collaborating with different people I'll just take a moment to say that I think it's really advantageous to be a restaurateur who gets to work with many different chefs,
2: Mm
3: -hmm. Um, I have a huge respect for chefs who have their own businesses, but they don't get to work with a lot of different chefs the way I do. I get to play with all kinds of musicians, and you never know what's going to come out of that. Um, So I love that, and I also increasingly um, love—how can I put this Uh, If you think about the original Union Square Café, it was an idea I had as a 26-year-old at the time that I had to find the right place to do it, and I had to find the right chef. And then Gramercy Tavern, 10 years later, I really wanted to work with Tom Colicchio, and so I had the right chef, and then I had to find the right idea and the right place. And I would say almost everything from that moment forward was finding a place that I was intrigued by and then trying to find what's the right idea and who's the right chef for that idea. So everything from Shake Shack, here's a park, what do you do with it? Or the modern, here's an art museum, what do you do with it? Or Citi Field. Here's a baseball stadium. What do you do with it? Or a jazz club like the jazz standard. And, you know, it was the jazz standard that drove the idea of doing barbecue, the pre-existence of the jazz club. So more and more what I find interests me is if you give me the frame, I'll figure out what kind of art belongs inside that frame, and I'll figure out who to do it with, who to play music with. And I'm just not anywhere near done figuring those things out.
1: That's so interesting. You know, I'm hearing you talk about that, I immediately think about North End Grill, which was a restaurant that you opened down in Battery Park City and when we first read about it, I was we were like, "What? Like wh- who goes to dinner there?" and like, "Where where is that even on the map?" you know? But <laughs> once you go there and you walk in, it's like it make the space makes sense and the kind of like I remember going there and thinking, "Oh, there's all these people here after work." And like, "Oh, there's there's these people here in the dining room like it's like, you know, some kind of regular hangout." And it just kind of like almost like made that area a place in my mind because there was like the restaurant there that was like the the ecosystem for it or something, you know?
2: Well, and it, yeah, and it was a neighborhood that was underserved, I would say.
3: It's it's great that you bring that one up because first of all, I, I think it's our our best slash least known restaurant. Mm-hmm. And I, I would still say that um, the north end of Battery Park City, even though it's right across the street from Tribeca, is one of the least... It's just not on anybody's um, flight pattern. You either live there or work there, or you had to get there from somewhere.
2: Right. It's not on the way to anything.
3: No. And and, and and I think a big part of what makes the context of figuring out the right piece of art for the frame work is authenticity. And we really struggled with that. Um, on one hand, we were and have always been excited about restaurants as placemakers. Like, how how can you— How can you take what we do and enliven a part of the city that was not as lively? And no one remembers this, but Union Square Park was not a place you wanted to go in 1985. And 20th Street, where Gramercy Tavern is, was not a place you wanted to go. And Madison Square Park was not a place you wanted to go before 11 Madison Park and Tabla and and Shake Shack later. So we we said, let's try this with, with Battery Park City. How do you make something authentic? in a part of the city that is actually inauthentic. It's landfill from when the World Trade Center was first built in the 1970s. That's what Battery Park City is. And so we asked ourselves, well, what was there before there was landfill? And if you go back far enough, there were oyster beds. So we start by going, okay, that's where we're going to start with this whole thing. And then there are wood pilings that, you know, were created for these piers. Okay, great, so now we got oysters and wood. That's where we started with the whole idea. Then we looked at the building, which before it was, you know, the home of the Conrad, was the home of Embassy Suites. Um, And we said, how do we coax authenticity out of this building? (laughs) So we stripped away everything right down to the steel bones of the place. And we said, that's the place. And it's going to be a restaurant based on wood and oysters and then we started thinking about wood grilling and charcoal grilling. And then we go, OK, what would you want to drink with that? And we go, whiskey, especially given who works in this neighborhood with American Express and Merrill Lynch and Goldman Sachs. And we made a bet that that, that neighborhood would, over time, fill in—it has filled in—you um, know the. The World Trade Center, the new building, whatever it's called, Liberty Place or I don't, I don't, I wish I knew the that.
2: the Freedom Tower. Or? There we go, yeah.
3: the Freedom Tower. America <laughs> 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 Building not, had not been built yet, and we knew that someone would eventually move into there. We didn't know it was going to be Condé Nast for one. Um, we we didn't know that Time Inc. was going to move right across the street into Brookfield Place. So it's been it's been a really fun thing to watch the neighborhood fill in a little bit. And then, to Amanda's earlier question, this took me a lot of years to learn when and this goes back with Union Square Cafe on Sixteenth Street, and I was a young guy, completely inexperienced every time a new restaurant would open there, I would get a little bit itchy, like you know like the neighbor's dog coming into my yard right. <laughs> and I finally learned that. That restaurant density is the single best thing that can happen to right. your business, and the creates more creates
2: a destination.
3: It does because why now all of a sudden more people have had the experience and they see that you know going to Battery Park City is not like flying to Cincinnati. It's actually, and you know somebody actually told me from the Upper East Side. Do you realize that I can get to North End Grill in 14 minutes or 12 minutes wow. by taking the FDR drive, looping down below Battery Park, and there I am? And uh, so it just takes time. It takes time when you're going to do a new neighborhood, but especially one that's a little bit off the beaten path.
2: You said you struggled with that restaurant. Did you have to make changes to it, or was it more of a waiting game, just waiting for the neighborhood to fill in?
3: Well, I don't think you ever wait. I think you have to make, you have to make moves. We— um, we had just closed Tabla a year before that, and I love Floyd Cardo's and I really wanted to keep working with him. And so I said to Floyd, hey, look, you're amazing with seafood. He and I had actually gone to um, Spain together uh, right after Tabla closed just to kind of have a moment of getting away from the sadness of that. and. You know, we both fell in love with the idea of wood grilling, as well. And so he was the he was the opening chef. I think it was a mistake, in retrospect, for him and for the restaurant, because you can't really take—he's he, like the greatest master with Indian spices I've ever met in my life. And North End Grill was putting out a very confusing message when half of the menu items were bread bar favorites mm-hmm. from Tabla and yet you're opening a an American grill with a great American bar. Um, so it wasn't
2: a cohesive enough It vision. It wasn't,
3: and we both knew it, and it it was hard. You know, so, sometimes this, this industry, the thing that's so great about it is you get to work with awesome people, and you're pulling in the same direction, and it's sad. It You know, we sometimes, in the way that I think at our best, we blur the line for our guests of going out and coming home. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes for our... Colleagues, we blur the line between going to work and coming home to a family. And so it's really hard to say goodbye to really good people. Um, but Floyd is now doing what he should be doing. Right. And Eric Korsch, um, it just—you know, luck sometimes happens. And he was in the process of, of leaving or closing Calliope, which I really liked a lot. And it dawned on me that, you know, he would be a really good, fun person to work with. And the message of North End Grill came together in a really, really strong way at that point.
2: Can you talk a little bit about what you know or what you can share about the new restaurant you're working on? The It's in the, skyscrap- the Sky skyscraper. The skyscraper. Okay.
1: When I first read about that, I was like, I don't even know what to expect, but I'm excited about it.
3: <laughs> well, good. I like, I like that attitude. You know, it, this is another great example of what we've been talking about. So we will be opening um, at... This amazing building, 28 Liberty Street, which is surrounded by Pine Street and William Street and Cedar Street, all these great names that a lot of people in Manhattan may never have been to before. Mm -hmm. We're obviously in the middle of an incredible renaissance in the lower part of Manhattan. It's a fascinating place in terms of its history, in terms of the architecture around here. And this was a building. I had walked by many times because there's this incredible Jean Dubuffet sculpture um, in the in the open plaza, and it turns out this was the headquarters for Chase, and David Rockefeller had his office on the 60th floor, and we learned about the opportunity to to do a lot of things. Um, Number one, our our company, Union Square Events, which is our biggest company, and maybe the one that most of your readers have never heard Mm -hmm. about, because it's, it's, we do parties, and Union Square Events actually is the licensee that does Shake Shack in ballparks.
2: Ah, okay.
3: Um, We work in business buildings. We do a lot of really fun things there. But Union Square Events has been searching for just a really amazing venue to host parties in, as opposed to always being a nomad and going, Mm -hmm. we do great parties wherever. But when we learned that this floor was available with the most amazing, unobstructed views in almost every single direction of Manhattan um, on the 60th floor, and that furthermore, in addition to having a place to do parties— Separate from that, we could actually create an incredible bar and create a small restaurant, not a big one. We said, all right, let's, let's see if we can challenge the notion that high-altitude dining has to be some highfalutin affair. And I think that what, what I think we hope to add to the dialogue on, on that kind of dining is that it seems that wherever there's an amazing view, whether you're in America, or Europe, or wherever, or, or Asia, I think the restaurant often is tempted to try too hard to create a restaurant that lives up to its view.
2: mm mm-hmm. With it, prices it, to match.
3: With prices to match. And it ends up not necessarily being the kind of restaurant you would want to go to once a week mm-hmm. or twice a week. You might go for a special occasion. Well, I'm not all that excited about special occasion dining i'm I'm just not, and that's part of the reason that even when we do really refined dining, like the dining room at Gramercy Tavern or the dining room at the Modern, we like to pair it with a more you know daily opportunity. Um, your man Lockhart, I think, likes it at the bar at Gramercy Tavern. Um a lot of people oh, prefer yeah. prefer to eat that way
2: lunch spot too
3: it is so, but but getting back to twenty eight liberty, we said, well, well, whoever wrote the rule that you can't put your favorite restaurant that you would go to once or twice a week on the 60th floor. And instead of trying to have a restaurant that lives up to the view, have the restaurant that you would do if it were on the ground floor of that building that I would hope would become your favorite restaurant since you work right around the corner. Mm -hmm. And hopefully the view won't make you like it any less.
2: Great! I'll have all my lunch meetings there. I and, can't wait, and
1: all your cocktails. I hope, and
2: all of our yeah, take, all of take our Amanda happy hours. and her
1: word. I'm sure that that is going to happen.
2: <laughs> we will make that happen.
1: Wow, that's exciting.
2: Another thing I wanted to touch upon that you talk about a lot is captive audience dining, and Shake Shack is is in airports and in stadiums and train stations. What's what's left there in that well, genre? So
3: Captive audience dining is one of the worst things that ever happened to our industry. but but it but it came to be for an obvious reason, which is people did not used to care that much about eating. And so, if you were going to a baseball game, you were going to the ball game and you were going to get your warm beer and an okay hot dog. And that was fine. that's that's all people cared about. Or if you were going to stay in a hotel, of course, the restaurant was going to be mediocre because it was really just there because they had to do it. Or if you went to an airport, of course, the food was going to be bad, or a hospital,
2: mm-hmm.
3: or college. Um, there's so many—or a jazz club, <laughs> and, or an art museum. And I think that um, what's happened, basically, is that the cost of doing the thing, whether it's going to an art museum or a baseball game or a hockey game or a football game has grown high enough that the very people who can afford to go to those events or to to go to an airport, the very people who can afford to do that thing have also been exposed to and care about good food in the rest of their lives. And they refuse, just because they're captive, to lower their standards and pay more money for less good food. And so I think this whole area has been challenged, and it's great. It's really—I I remember when we opened Café Two at, at the Museum of Modern Art back in 2004, we, we said to ourselves, let's—you know, whoever wrote the rule at a museum cafeteria has to suck. What, what, what if you could make a place that people would go even if they had not paid $20 to get into the museum and that they would be excited to go? And we started, in fact, hearing people who said— I, re-upped my membership so that I can mm-hmm. go to Cafe 2 all the time. And my own kids were like, they, they didn't want to go to art museums. But once we opened Cafe 2, they got excited about right. it.
2: And at the Whitney, I get a 10% discount eating at your restaurants.
3: That That's awesome. So, and we've seen this happening. It, it's really exciting. I mean, baseball games are, I think, if your team is losing, go make yourself feel better with... A good taco or a good barbecue plate or a good shackle. What shack about um,
2: rest stops? That's my big thing. Like, there's always a McDonald's at my rest stop driving to Boston or yeah. driving to New York.
3: Well, I think I think if you look around the country, it's starting to get a little bit better. Every now and then there's a Popeye's, which is pretty good.
2: <laughs> Sometimes but, I'll see a Chipotle um, but you're, no, you're and, absolutely, and a Starbucks, I guess.
3: You're absolutely right about that. I think Europe does that pretty well. Mm-hmm. Auto Grill in Italy yeah. is awesome. and um, And then there's— there's some companies that I've seen, especially in the Northeast, there's one called Sheets. I don't know if you've ever heard of them.
1: It's like sandwiches or something?
3: It's a gas station that says we're actually a restaurant as opposed to oh. a gas station that just happens to have you know cellophane-wrapped hot dogs and hamburgers. And they, I think you're going to see more and more of that.
2: Would you bring Shake Shacks to rest stops or another concept to hospitals?
3: On. Uh, <laughs> I don't think we have any plans to bring Shake Shacks to rest stops. But I, I would never say never. Mm-hmm. And as far as hospitals are concerned, there's absolutely no question that um, hospitals are getting more and more competitive. And no one goes to a hospital because they want to. But—and and, and I'm including the families of the patients as well. And I think that the opportunity to to have hospitals think not just how can I get you better, but how can I make you feel better?
2: Mm-hmm.
3: There's no question that food is going to play some role in that. Good well, food.
2: I remember reading that um, Brodo had opened at NYU Langone, the, or they started serving there a month after I gave birth. And I was so upset because I could have had the bone broth Would have been the when I gave thing. birth. And,
3: and someday didn't. your kid's going to be on the analyst couch going, <laughs> right. why didn't I get that this was bone why.
1: broth? So Danny, a few times in our chat, you've mentioned, uh, you know, who wrote the rule that, which made me think about this book right here, setting the table, <laughs> which is something I really wanted to chat with you about. So I read this book a long time ago. It really made me kind of look at the industry restaurant industry in a slightly different way and I've also met a lot of people who I feel like have kind of made their career decisions based on insights from this book like turning like a restaurant job that was a side hustle type thing into like oh no actually I am the person that should like this is what I want to do this was written a long time ago would you ever like revisit this would you ever do like another kind of business text like this I mean, the industry's changed a lot since you wrote it.
3: Yeah. So about, it's funny you asked the question. And by the way, you, I'm looking at your copy. You need a new copy. Yeah, this, only, this is a handy only $9, $9 it, it on does, Amazon, only for that. It has God like
1: a, a little, yeah, tiny little photo that's of That's kind of sad.
3: <laughs> that's sad. But anyway, about two years ago, I had this amazing experience that I realized had been happening a lot. But I was with my family in South Africa, and we were in Durban in a hotel. And I was at the breakfast buffet. And the manager comes up to me, and he said, are you Danny Meyer? And I said, yes, I am. And he goes, the salt shaker. (laughs) And I go, that's a little creepy. (laughs) And then he goes, constant gentle pressure. And he said, we make everyone on our team read your book. It's so great. And then I had a similar experience at a restaurant in Cape Town. And then I started reflecting that I could be in San Francisco or Chicago. And it always feels good, or it would always feel good when someone would say, your book helped me think about my career or helped me think about my business. By the way, many of whom were not even in the restaurant business. You know, I've heard this from all kinds of different careers. And then it dawned on me, and I said, we don't even make our own team read this book. And in the same way as I don't want to be the kind of dad that makes you see pictures of my kids, <laughs> I never wanted to be the kind of boss that made you read my book. And I realized that's absolutely ridiculous. Why should why should other people be playing out of our playbook even with more focus than we do? So I said that to a couple members of my team, and— We have a chief culture officer um, who's awesome, Erin Moran, and she said, "Well, let me ask you two questions. Would you have changed anything that you wrote in setting the table?" And I said, "No, actually not, because all that stuff's true. It all happened." And she said, "All right, fine. Well, ten years have gone by. Is there anything that you've learned in the ten years that you would have wanted to add to it?" And so I said, "Yes, absolutely." So I wrote a new forward, but only for our team and we had Harper Collins rebind it as our playbook
2: the secret forward what? i want to read this I, we are going to try to get this leaked to us oh damn <laughs> why did i why did i tell you guys but this But why wouldn't like, you
1: just it's it's not available it's not available like to you know like you couldn't go and buy it on amazon no
3: you cannot buy it on amazon could you give us
2: a hint as to what's in yeah, the forward yeah I'd, I'd be happy
3: yeah. to and it's not it's not a big secret or anything like that but but to the question, well, what have you, what are the primary things you've learned? The biggest thing was, I used to think that the best way to screw up your culture was to grow. And I later learned that it's a flawed question to say, how can you possibly maintain your culture even with all this growth? Because culture does not want to be maintained. Culture will not be maintained. It's a shark. It's, not, it's either moving forward or it's going to die. And so... Then I I learned that the right question to ask was, how can we use our growth to advance our culture? And so that's largely what the Ford is about. And I realized that while the book talks about, while, while setting the table talks about enlightened hospitality and it talks about prioritizing our staff members, even before our customers, even before our community, even before our suppliers, and even before our investors, as a virtuous cycle it doesn't—setting the table doesn't tell our team how they're supposed to behave while they're doing it. And so what I also wrote about in the new forward was the family values, which I think every family has them, whether they name them or not. And we had our team participate. We realized that we had taught people like 28 different ways to be, which is impossible to hold anyone accountable for. Thoughtful, gracious, hopeful. You know, I could go on and on with all these words. And we distilled them down to four things. And I wrote about that in the foreword. And what's great about it is when we make a mistake, the, the great thing about having a playbook, no matter who you are, is that it doesn't prevent you from making mistakes. But it's a fantastic mirror so that when you do make a mistake, you see where you made it. And and so that's that's what the new forward was about. And now we do require our team to read it. (laughs) And we have book club meetings where anyone who wants to come ask questions or share their thoughts can do that. And it it really helps to bring it to life.
1: That's so awesome. Does anybody ever ask you to like sign copies of it? Like have you ever had that at a restaurant? Of course. Happens. Yeah. okay. Yeah,
3: of course. (laughs) Every day. (laughs) No, but. You know what? Shame on the book author that ever complains about signing a book. Because why did you write it, if not for the pleasure of someone reading it?
2: That's great. Um, That's great. Greg, is
1: it lightning round? Yeah, I think it's time for the lightning round. Our guest question asker
4: today is Lockhart Steele. Hey, Danny, it's Lockhart Steele, Eater's co-founder. Got some lightning round questions for you. What is your secret restaurant service pet peeve that no one else would pick up on? It drives you crazy when it happens to you. I can't
3: stand it when someone answers a question I never ask them, whether it's a sommelier or whether it's the server or whether it's the person serving the cheese. It's really impressive for me if I ask you about the cheese when you have the answer. That's impressive to me. But it's depressive to me when you tell me everything about the five cheeses yeah. even before knowing <laughs> that I care or that I even want cheese
2: very annoying. <laughs> I feel like restaurants have a tendency, or service staff have a tendency, to over overshare sometimes. It, it,
3: they do, and and it comes from a good place. I well, think. they've
2: learned about it. They're, They're excited proud. about it. They're
3: proud that they know who milled the flour that went into the <laughs> awesome bread at Daily Provisions. Right. But I want I you just to enjoy the bread. <laughs> enjoy the bread. And if you if you want to know more, it is our responsibility to have the answer. But I think you'll appreciate. That we answered your question in a way that you will not appreciate. Like, if I, if I, I've gone to restaurants before where I'll, where I'll pick a wine and it's enough that the sommelier says, that's a great choice. But the next thing they do is tell me the minerality, the, you know, the biodynamic yeah. farming. Just
2: I, say just, good job and then go open it. Just go get the wine. Yeah. That's all.
4: Hilarious. All right, Locke, we got another question for Danny. What is your wife's favorite restaurant anywhere, any town?
2: Now we're just trying to get him in trouble. <laughs>
4: no,
3: not my wife. Audrey loves going to restaurants. She knows that I do not like going to my own restaurants with her because I do a bad job of being with her while I'm doing a bad job of eating and, and dealing with the things that I'm seeing in the mm-hmm. restaurant. She loves going to restaurants we've never been to. And if there's got to be one favorite I'm going to say Barbudo, Jonathan Waxman's restaurant.
1: That is a great choice for favorite restaurant. It seems like just following you on Instagram, um it seems like you're kind of constantly out checking places out. Is that is that like the case? I mean, as much as you can or like, you know.
3: No, I I'd never I never miss an opportunity to have a good food experience and I I especially like doing it outside of New York cuz I think Even in our country where everybody kind of knows everything that's going on, I do think that different cities and their chef communities and restaurant communities focus on different things, and I like to go deep into topics. And so wherever I'm traveling, for whatever reason, I could be giving a talk, I could be going to a conference, I could be going to a board meeting, um, I could be visiting a Shake Shack, whatever it is, I'm going to... I'm going to fit more meals in a day than any human being should, because I want to learn.
2: How much cacio e pepe did you eat in Rome? Oh, boy, did I eat cacio e <laughs> pepe. And then I came home and cooked some two nights oh, ago. Oh, nice. Oh,
1: I have a follow-up question related to that. I saw on your Instagram story. You went into like a Shake Shack clone, or you had like a photo of a place that had the logo. What was what was the story there? What was that place? Did you know about well, it?
3: Interestingly, um, my daughter, Hallie, is cooking at the American Academy in Rome, and she had seen this place in the Jewish ghetto. Of, of all things. And we've seen these around the world. There's one in Buenos Aires that completely copies everything, <laughs> the font, the buzzer, the, the menu items. Oh, my God. There's one in Madrid that completely copies everything. And so— she just took me there and, she's, and Hallie said, you just got to see this, Dad. So I saw it and I took a picture and I thought I would just
2: comment. Do you ever follow up? Do you have a legal team that tries to— You can't
3: really—we we definitely have a legal team um, in the United—you St- you, you can't call your place Shake Shack. We have patents or trademarks, rather, all over the world. Um, but it's really hard if someone is going to be unoriginal enough to steal the font— it's just there's not not much you can do about it. I I've never understood people who are me too. Yeah. It's just like why be an entrepreneur if if you don't have a fresh idea? What are you adding to the dialogue? Right. I just don't get that at all. But um it is what it is. It, we we also are very aware we did not invent burgers or french fries or right. frozen custard. Mm-hmm. So,
2: so it's kind if of they like, don't have the execution, yeah, doesn't getting, really getting, matter.
3: Getting back to the the music analogy. How many notes are there in the octave? You know, Neil Young did not invent the notes in the octave, but the originality is how do you put them together? And, and what kind of life and spirit do you bring to your music after that point? So there's really not that much new under the sun.
2: Locke, next question.
4: What's the biggest tip you've ever left in a restaurant? Where and why? Um,
3: generally... If if I go to a restaurant and, one, you know, one of the really lovely courtesies in our industry is that we restaurateurs and chefs like to take care of each other. And so if somebody wants to host me and, and treat me and my wife to dinner um, in their restaurant, I just feel an obligation to leave a tip for almost what the entire amount would have been. So how do you measure that? It's like a 100% tip. <laughs> At that point, but I feel like the server, and I'm talking about restaurants that have tips, um, obviously. But I feel like the server shouldn't have to suffer because because the owner because wanted to comp, treat me yeah. to dinner, so they'll get a hundred percent tip at that point.
1: Nice. All right, Locke. We got another question. Special bonus
4: media question: Is the world better or worse off with Twitter? Really? I mean, really.
3: Hmm. I, I think the world's better off. I I think Twitter is a fantastic way to get your news and to curate your own magazine or your own newspaper with the articles that you're interested in reading about. Um, I have become—I I don't have statistics to prove this, but I've become somewhat dispirited with tweeting, and it could be because of the political environment that we're in, where, where There's just so much rancor um, being expressed in 144 characters by so many people. So is the world a better place because of spewing all that rancor? Absolutely not. Is the world a better place because, um, you know, a a weather event or an accident or a tragedy um, or just news can get expressed and communicated within— Milliseconds of it happening, yes, it's a way better place. And I think that if the price to to know what's going on really quickly and to address problems really quickly is that some really angry people have an opportunity to throw grenades, I guess that's fine, but it's probably a better place. One thing that you guys did at Eater, which I'm so grateful for, is you got rid of a lot of the just— really unfortunate anger surrounding the comment section. I think you got rid of it probably five or six years ago. Yeah. And it's so much nicer to visit Eater.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think I getting just, rid of anonymous comments was was huge for us. And we got a lot of pushback from it, um, from people who wanted to be able to still do it. But forcing someone to sign up and put their name and email on something it really changed the tenor of the conversation.
4: Yeah, it's it's a healthy thing.
2: All right, Locke, we
1: got one more question.
4: So you're a diehard St. Louis Cardinals fan. And you're a diehard Boston Red Sox fan. I have to ask you the only truly important question. Have you adjusted to a world in which the Chicago Cubs have won the World Series? Are you happy for them? Or are you still angry and confused? I don't think I've quite adjusted to it yet. Um, (laughs) I was in Chicago in a
3: hotel room during Game 7 that was played in Cleveland, as you well know, Locke, and it's too bad your Red Sox were not in that World Series, but they weren't. And I decided to order a deep-dish pizza, and I grabbed a nice bottle of Italian wine from Italy, right near my hotel. And I was probably the only person in all of Chicago that was not rooting for the Cubs that night. Because why would you ever root for your arch rival? And why would you root for a team that is beloved because it cannot win (laughs) to all of a sudden lose the very reason you loved it in the first place?
1: Well, hey, Danny Meyer, thanks so much for uh, joining us here in the Eater Upsell studio. I feel like I learned a lot and uh, I feel like you've given us a lot to think about and look forward to in the future as
2: well. And thanks to Locke for letting us end on a real sour note. (laughs) Thanks,
3: guys. Amanda and Greg, it was fun. Thanks.
0: The Eater Upsell is recorded at Vox Media Studios in Manhattan and Los Angeles. Your hosts are me, Helen Rosner, and Greg Moravito, that other guy whose voice you hear on every episode. Our executive producer is Maureen Gianone. Our associate producer and editor is Daniel Janine. Our editorial producer is Monica Burton. Our studio team is Miles Ewell, Alex Ulreich, Paige Bethman, and Stephanie Broderick. And our editor-in-chief and fearless leader is Amanda Clute. But of course, of all of these people, the one who makes all of this possible, without whom none of this could exist, without whom we would just wither and die, is you, dear listener. You. Thank you for listening to what we do here, and thank you for being your beautiful self.